I want to welcome you. If you're visiting with us, we are excited that you chose to spend a Thursday night with us here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. Uh, We're in the middle of summer and people are on vacation. I I think we have half the staff gone this week. So uh, it is that time where where, we're kind of thinking about all those things. And it's a joy to see your smiling faces out uh, to study God's word. I want to also remind you, you know, as your pastor... I think it's essential that we don't become once a week or worse yet once a month once a month Christians uh, in God's house. And that's not to put a guilt trip on anybody. It's to say uh, we need the word and the study tonight really kind of brings that into focus. Because the focus of this next couple of chapters uh, really is the remainder of the reason why uh, the Jewish people have failed to see Messiah. And I want to begin by reminding you that no people on earth have ever been so blessed by God with so much direct revelation from God than the Jewish people. And the reason I remind you of that is we can go to church our whole life and get direct revelation from the Lord and hear the word of the Lord, and not believe a word of it. People hear the word all the time, and turn and walk away, because they have the same problem that the Jewish people still to this day have, which is they try and bring God down to their level, instead of rise to his level. And so we are going to begin a two-part, really, study uh, that I've entitled, Why Did They Do That? And we'll, we'll look at the rest of it uh, in our next time together here in Romans chapter 10. But if you'd look there at verses 1 through 3, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless his word, and then we'll read it together. Father, we have drawn together as your family again uh, to learn of you, to know what truth is, to, to know how to have faith. That faith comes by hearing, we're going to see in this chapter, and hearing by the word of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church as we study your infallible and holy word. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. First three verses, Romans chapter 10 tonight. Romans 10, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, now remember, this is the Apostle Paul, again writing to his own kindred in birth, his, his brethren. He's writing to Christians who happen to be, uh, he's writing from Rome, but he's really writing about uh, his own people. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That is the earnest prayer of every single believer about every person on the face of the earth. And so while this passage is specific about Israel, in general it also should be our desire for everyone that we know, all of our family, every person you can think of. If there's any one gift that you should put above every other gift that you could give to someone and they would receive it, it would be to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? That's the one thing that matters in eternity. 
The rest of it, while important here on this earth, while it has bearing on our lives here tonight even, uh, it will not change your, your eternal destiny, no matter how much money or power or fame and fortune, no matter how well you're doing or not well you're doing, no matter how politically powerful you are or are not. Those things won't matter in eternity. But what does matter is what did you do with the gospel? How did you respond? Yay or nay? And so Paul's going to draw attention to the importance of this one fact. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he's linking knowledge here with biblical truth. What he's previously said. He said they have incredible zeal. In other words, they're unbelievably religious. You have those kind of people in your life tonight? Unbelievably religious and unbelievably lost at the same time. There are billions of them on this planet. Billions of people tonight are amazingly religious. They have a zeal for God, but completely without knowledge. The right kind of knowledge. And we're going to see that as we tear this passage apart and really look at it. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness... And here's where my introduction comes into view. You see, we as humankind like to pull God down to our level and then make standards that we can meet. We like to take the righteousness of God, which is absolute and perfect, and we like to pull it down to the place that we live. We don't like to leave God's righteousness in the heavens where it belongs high above the earth where it seems a far stretch for us, we like to bring the righteousness of God down here to where I can look over the fence of righteousness and say, I'm doing fine. And so Paul is making a very definitive statement here. They're ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted to the righteousness of God. It's a problem that still is in our world today with everyone, not just the Jewish people. But this applies to the Jewish people in a very specific way. And I, and I want to dig in here and begin by saying this. This is something that everyone needs to watch out for. Because you will probably meet and talk to people that when you talk to them about your relationship with the Lord, they will say things like, well, I'm okay with God. Anybody had that experience? Yeah, I'm okay with me and God are square, you know, and they'll do this. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I read the good book. Anybody ever heard that one? Or how about this one? I go to church. Some people say, well, we have a Bible. You understand what I'm saying? 
Some people believe because they have a knowledge of God, they have the right knowledge of God. When in fact, the knowledge that they do have actually brings them under the condemnation of the very righteousness that God is trying to give them by grace and through faith. Because God is 100% completely holy and righteous, and in order for you to go to heaven, you have to be exactly like him. Now, praise God, the way that happens is by grace and through faith. Amen? It's not by religion. It's not by having the right kind of Bible. It's not by going to church. Though all of these things can be helpful in the progression in your own personal understanding of these things, it is a righteous relationship that comes to you by grace and through faith that actually saves you and then makes you as righteous as you need to be, which is perfectly righteous. It's not the religion. People think, still to this day, that religion can make you right with God. And in fact, as it has done to the Jewish people, religion very often can make you extraordinarily blind. Because you pull God down to your level, you start to make rules that you yourself and everyone around you can most likely meet, and you do not honor the righteousness of God. And so Paul draws attention to this, and he does so by talking about knowledge. And so he's really saying, hey, what constitutes truth? What constitutes knowledge? What is real is another way to look at it. You see, when you think of what he's really saying here, it, it brings into focus many of the things that Jesus said about himself. You see, truth in our day and time does not come from the newspaper, whether it's the E edition or the paper edition. It doesn't come from the state house. It doesn't come from the halls of Congress. It doesn't come from the UN. It doesn't come from the desk of the president. The only truth that's reliable truth comes from the word of God. Everything else is generally someone's opinion about something. But the word of God is actual truth. And from the beginning of the book of Genesis, which, by the way, if you're not with us, come on Sunday nights. We're studying. We just began the book of Genesis. We find in the beginning God. The Jewish people knew that. It's the first words of the Torah. And yet they went from in the beginning God to right now it's all about the rabbis and what they think. It's no longer about God himself. It's about what someone else has said they think God meant. Do you understand the difference? That's the difference between the actual word of God and someone's interpretation of what it says. Now, admittedly, when we teach the word of God, we're attempting to give the proper interpretation along with some application of that interpretation. But hopefully, the message that's central to it is the teaching of the actual word itself, which thy word, O God, in Psalm 119, plainly declares in verse 160, thy word, O God, is truth. You see, they missed that part. 
And all kinds of other things all of a sudden began to be truth to them. Jesus, the gospel, the word, those are truth. Religion, including the Jewish misinterpretation of the Old Testament, is not truth. That's why Jesus will see as we begin John's gospel in a couple of weeks. We're, we're starting a bunch of new books right now. We're going to finish up 2 Thessalonians. We're going to go to John's gospel. John chapter 1. He is the one who is full of grace and truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. In him is all truth. You you see, we need to have the right focus of truth in order to understand what it is. We have to be looking at the right kind of truth. People don't like that truth. While Jesus was teaching in the temple treasury there in John 8, he said, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He was in the temple treasury when he taught that, the most religious place on the face of the earth. He didn't say, if you know what this building's about. He said, if you go around, ask the priest if you can go inside the holy place and ask him to explain what the table of the showbread is all about. He said, you'll know the truth. We need to understand truth. The Jewish people needed truth. Jesus declares himself, everyone who hears is of the truth, and they will hear my voice in John 18. John 14, 6, we all know it. I am the way and the truth and the life. Amen? And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus promised his disciples in John 16, when he, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Do you understand the importance of truth? That's why we study God's word and not what somebody thinks about God's word. In the last nine minutes, I've quoted nine passages of Scripture. Why? Because His Word is truth. His Word is truth. His Word is truth. We need to know His Word. You see, that's what they were missing. Even Jesus in John 17, this incredible high priestly prayer, which is really the the Lord's prayer, if you want to look at it that way. He said, sanctify them in thy truth. For your word is truth. Man, you got to know truth. It is truth that sets you. Amen? It's Notice it doesn't say, and the church will set you free. And your bumper sticker on your car will set you free. And if you go on a mission trip, you'll be set free. No, it's the truth that sets us free. Because the truth puts Jesus' righteousness where it belongs. It leaves it high. It doesn't drag it down here in the dust of the earth and say, well, you can meet that standard. It leaves it where you can't do it by any other means than God's grace. You see, when I look at the truth of who God is, 
what happens to me is I'm hopelessly lost. I am completely without remedy for my own situation before that holy God. There is zero way that I myself can meet that standard. You see, so the righteousness of God is important for us us to understand our need for His grace. It's the righteousness of God that drives us to the grace of God. It's His kindness that draws us there, but it's His righteousness that drives us there. You look at your own life and go, man, I am so undone. That's actually what happened to the prophet Isaiah. When he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, he said, woe unto me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And he wasn't saying they're worse than I am. He's saying we're all the same. You see, that's the righteousness of God in its its rightful place. And so God's gospel, the gospel of grace, puts a high premium on God's truth, which puts an even higher premium on his own personal righteousness so that we understand we can't get there without Jesus. But here's what happened with the Jewish concern for truth. And this is important in the context of this passage because remember, this is specifically about the Jewish people. But it applies generally to everyone because we're all, before a holy God, condemned people. Nobody's getting there on their own. So when somebody says, I'm good enough, you can say, well, how did you get there? And they'll say, well, I did this, 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 and this, and I went to this thing, and I did that thing, and oh, by the way, I gave to this orphanage, and I did that, and you can say, that's not enough. And they can add a few more things to it. Well, when I die, I'm leaving all of my possessions to, you know, to this organization. You can say, that's not enough. You can can say, keep coming, keep coming. What What do you got? Doesn't matter how many are fathers and Hail Marys. It's not enough. Doesn't matter how much giving you do. It's not enough. Doesn't matter how long you, I taught Sunday school for 57 years. God bless you, it's not enough. There's no amount of you working anything that's going to make it ever enough. You see, the Jewish people even took it a step further. They said, we actually understand that God is righteous, so here's what we're going to do. We'll make his righteousness a standard that some of us might actually be able to keep. You see... They had the Old Testament. They were carefully instructed. And as a matter of fact, especially Jewish young boys, from the time they were 12 years old, their bar mitzvah, they they would go into the synagogue. It was on their bar mitzvah the first time that they could read from the Torah. And they would speak forth the Word of God. So they were actually instructed in the truth. But what began to happen is instead of them actually doing what it said, they began to talk to each other. And here's where it comes into our lives today. Let me just tell you directly as your pastor, 
If you're looking for someone to agree with you about your misinterpretation of Scripture, you're going to find someone. If you're looking for God's Word to say something in error, someone will back it up for you. I can't tell you how many times people have come into my office and they'll describe some problem they're going through and they'll say, well, so-and-so told me it was okay. And then you ask, well, who is this person? Well, you know, they go to the church. You see, that's someone who probably knows what it says, but they're more worried about what the person thinks than what God thinks. That was the Jewish people. They were trying to keep their earthly relationships all on an even keel while allowing their relationship with God basically to fall apart. And so they brought it down to their level. Paul actually recounts in his own life in Acts chapter 22, we just finished the book of Acts, that he had studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. Absolutely preeminent rabbi of the time. It's kind of like, you know, I studied under Billy Graham, or I studied under Chuck Smith, or I, you know, just pick some person that you can, that's one of the most godly people I've ever heard of. I studied under him. I studied under Norman Geisler. I took systematic theology from Thiessen. I was in Spurgeon's church. Can I tell you that I'm pretty sure that Charles Spurgeon occasionally didn't get it right. I'll give you a little secret. Occasionally I don't get it right. Now I work real hard at that not happening very often, but every once in a while I'll sit there and go, you know what? I could have said that differently. That's why you're supposed to be Bereans and test for yourselves to see if these things are true. And every once in a while somebody says, well, you said this. And I'll go, I did. And I'll listen to it. You know what? I did. Here's what I meant to say. Here's what I did not say. So make sure that your truth is coming from God's word. You see, the rabbis were held in such esteem that their interpretations of scripture became scripture itself. Matter of fact, so much so that they became revered to the point of they were actually worshipped instead of God. They began to compile what we know now as the Mishnah, which is the oral law of Judaism. Today, if you try and find a copy of, for instance, the Babylonian Talmud, which is the Mishnah uh, combined and written out in as much oral history as can be said, it's 6,200 pages. That is the commentary on what we call the Old Testament. So if you go to your Bible and turn past the New Testament to where the book of Malachi ends, from there to the other, you're going to find out that the Mishnah, which was the commentary, the oral tradition of how to apply the law, was four times as long as the actual Bible itself. And yet people believed the Mishnah over the Torah or the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament. So they began to listen to, if they wanted an answer, rather than going to the Lord with it and his word, well, was there ever a rabbi that said, I could do this? 
you know, well, it's really not stealing as long as that person leaves it in the field for a while. It's selective borrowing. You see, that's what people still do today. Well, it's really not fornication because I, you know, I really, in my heart, I believe that there's a possibility at some point in time, maybe I might marry that girl. It's really not drunkenness because, you know, I can handle it. It's it's not actually drug abuse because this particular drug is now legal in the state of California. Am I making sense to you? Well, you you know what? Uh, You know, yeah, we're getting a divorce, but God approves of my divorce because after all, I got verbally abused. You see, the Word of God doesn't support that. The law in the state of California supports that. But make no doubt about it, the Word of God doesn't support that. And by the way, I'm not supporting verbal abuse or any of those other things. I'm simply saying be careful that what you say is from God is actually from His Word. And not from the lips of man. Because from the lips of man, oh my goodness, can you find people to tell you just about anything you want to hear? Amen? So divine truth gets lost in the interpretation. It is only God's word that is that truth. And that's why Jesus said, you, you know neither me nor my father there in John 8. For if you knew me, you'd know my Father also. And when he says, look, I am truth, but the devil is the father of all lies. And when he speaks, he's speaking from his own resources because he's the originator of those things. You see, that's a very different contrast. You see, what he's really saying is, look, Israel's spiritual ignorance was not because they didn't know the truth. They didn't like what the truth said. They wanted a Messiah that was going to kill Rome. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a conquering king that was going to come in and the Roman general be coming down the road and... Too bad for you. They were not looking for soft hearts and changed lives. They were looking for changed circumstances. Brothers and sisters, be careful that you're not only looking for changed circumstances because the enemy can give you changed circumstances and suck you right into his trap. It is the truth that sets people free. It is not a change of circumstance. Because if it was change of circumstance, God could have just changed the circumstances, which he did, by the way. Can anyone tell me what the Garden of Eden was? It was a paradise, was it not? 
Were Adam and Eve able to escape with perfect righteousness, living in a paradise? The answer is no. So God could make your situation absolutely perfect, and you could still miss the truth, which is you need a righteous relationship with God. Peter, after he'd been at the temple, temple gate, he's speaking there in Acts 3. He says, now, brethren, you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But he says, you disowned the Holy One of Israel. Make no mistake about it. He came, but you disowned him. But you did it in ignorance. Isaiah the prophet would speak to the Jewish people. He says, look, my people have gone into exile because of their lack of the knowledge of the truth. Hosea would say the same thing. My people are destroyed for the lack of the knowledge of truth. They weren't destroyed because the Assyrians were the greatest warring power on the face of the earth. They were not brought into captivity because the Babylonians were too strong. Those things happened because they rejected the truth. God had spoken to them, told them exactly what kind of people they were supposed to be, and said, we're not doing it. We don't, we don't like those guidelines. It's kind of like they were in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more like guidelines, really. It's kind of guidelines. No, it's not guidelines. It's truth. When something is true and you're supposed to live in truth, you do what it says. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. Now, praise God, because we know the Lord, he gives us grace to accomplish those things with. He gives us faith to work in. In other words, the ignorance of God doesn't bring the rejection of him, but rather the rejection of God brings ignorance of him. It's exactly the opposite of what you would think. When you you begin with the premise, God's not watching, God doesn't care, Well, God gave me something too hard. When you begin there, you can do anything you want. But if you begin with a God that's holy and righteous and lifted up in the heavens and expects that out of you, then all of a sudden your standards are his standards and not yours. Paul begins now by praying for Israel in verse 1. You see, Paul wasn't indifferent to his own people. He wasn't cold, he wasn't... You would think that maybe after his maltreatment, because let's face it, Paul got kind of a raw deal. By the end of his life, we find him chased out of Jerusalem by the former people he used to serve with in the Sanhedrin. They chase him all the way to Caesarea Maritima on the coast. They have a plot against him to kill him, and so much so that they want then Festus and Felix and Agrippa to release him so that he can go on the road so they can actually physically kill him. So you're kind of thinking maybe Paul's attitude would change a little bit towards his own people. You know what? Maybe you should kill him, God. You ever have people in your life like that? Maybe you should kill him, God. Please don't think that way. No matter how much they've hurt you, no matter how much they've stomped on you, no matter what they've done to you, you remain a person who prays for those who persecute you and falsely use you and call you all manner of names You just keep praying because that honors God. 
And so Paul prays for the very people who tried to have him killed. His deepest heart's desire is that every Jew would be saved. And now he's a, he's a believer, but he still recognizes his own sin. That's what I love about the writings of Paul. He never excludes himself from the very grace that he preaches. He says, lest you think anything of me, oh, by the way, I'm the chief of sinners. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't get prideful. Don't get lifted up about your own standing in grace. But recognize that God has given you that grace so freely so that you would draw others to that freely given grace. Not to your religion. Not to your own personal way of doing things, but to his magnificent, abundant, and free gift of grace. You see, it comes out really in, in how Jesus himself and certainly Stephen, remember, have you ever put yourself, and I know this is kind of weird and I don't want you to think it's like, you know, some like thing I do all the time, but, but I have tried to kind of place myself at times. I've just been sitting, studying, and in prayer. And it's like, what would it have been like to have been nailed to a cross? And try and imagine that somehow Jeff Gill has the capacity to assuage the sins of the world. Now, I'm kind of thinking, when I'm nailed to the cross and people are mocking me after I've paid the price, I'm already up there. I can't move. I can't go anywhere. My hands, my feet are nailed. That blood is clotting in my eyes from the crown of thorns. And I've been beat in the face with a rod and my beard has been plucked out. And I've been forced to carry my own cross. And I've been beat unto death. And I'm hanging on the cross. I don't know that I could squeeze out the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I would be thinking, they know exactly what they did. You see, this is where my messiahship falls apart. (laughs) They know exactly what they did. There's no doubt about it. That guy right there, I wouldn't be able to point, but (laughs) him. The dude with a hammer in the hand. Forgive those guys over there. And I'd kind of try and nod that way. I don't mean to make a mockery of the Lord. I'm trying to tell you how difficult would that be? I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how holy you are. I don't think you could squeeze out the words, Father, forgive them. That meant everyone, for they know not what they do. You see, the Jews were expecting Jesus to go kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. And oh, by the way, okay, this is enough. Kill Caesar too. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. They didn't want somebody on the cross to forgive them. Kill him. Stephen does the same thing. Father God, do not hold this against him. That's the love of God. That's our prayer. That should be your prayer. So we need to kind of adjust how we see that, don't we? I do. I do. You know, because sometimes I have, a, I have a fairly limited sphere of people that, you know, Lord, if you save them, that'd be awesome. 
You know, when I'm around orphans and little kids, I'm rolling in the dirt. I'm doing anything I possibly can. But you, you bring that arrogant adult for the 50th time into my office, that person that has tested my grace quotient and my love quotient and my patience and my goodness and very often my generosity and my kindness and all those things, which by the way, none of that would have existed in me were it not for the work of God. But there is a limit that we have humanly and we say, well, you know, that's the 50th time. For I am God. It's okay. And you start making up your own little things in your head. All oh, they're hard is hard, Lord. I'm giving you a little insight because there's probably not a person in this room that hasn't done that very thing. Maybe it was an ex-spouse. And oh, until that happened. Brian, God. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's somebody in your life. Maybe it was a business partner. Oh, it was okay until that happened, and then it's like, mm, that's the end of grace. Paul said for his own people, I still wish that they would all be saved. Brothers and sisters, do you want peace in your life? That needs to be your prayer for everybody especially those who have hurt you. Especially those who have used you. Especially those who have persecuted you and done all manner of evil against you falsely. Because that's where the grace of God is most visible in your life. That's where forgiveness, actually real forgiveness comes from. That's why Jesus could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. No apostle understood that more fully than the Apostle Paul. And what that does is it it starts to get you to live a great commission life. You fall in love with Matthew 28. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all men. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. You see, you can't really do that unless you actually have a love for all people. Because you know it's going to be uncomfortable at times. It's going to be unpleasant at times. It's going to be smelly and stinky at times. It's going to be very inconvenient at times. It's going to cost you at times. Paul's prayer was that they all be saved, no matter who they were, no matter where they were. But the Jewish people had an ignorant zeal. It says here in verse 2, but they had uh, a zeal for God, but not according with knowledge, and the truth was not in their heart. They had a type of knowledge, and he uses, interestingly enough, the type of knowledge that's associated with just general knowledge, gnosis not epigenosis. They had gnosis, but they did not have epigenosis. They did not have spirit knowledge. They just had general knowledge. That's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, for you search the Scriptures, for you think that in them you have life. 
Oh, you can quote chapter and verse, but you don't actually have a clear understanding of what that means, is what he was saying. You don't have epigenosis. You only have gnosis. You see, they had an understanding, but it was all here and it never got here. Don't let that be you. You see, for the Jewish people, that's the problem. They have tons of gnosis. They have gnosis by the bucket loads. They're more knowledgeable about the Old Testament than probably every one of us in this room, including myself. They actually know the Messianic passages of Scripture. But they've spent generations saying, well, it doesn't mean that. When it plainly does. Because what's happened is if they believe that it says what it says and means what it says, then it means they killed Messiah. They don't like that eventuality. And so they try and escape it with a type of knowledge, gnosis, instead of allowing it to turn into epigenosis. That's saving relationship by the power of the Spirit. So important, family, that we don't stop short of opening ourselves up to Jesus changing our hearts. That's why Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus there in Ephesians chapter 1. Incredible prayer that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you a spirit of wisdom and the revelation of epigenosis knowledge of him. And I pray that your hearts might be enlightened. It means to be illuminated. In other words, the illumination of heart. You see, you can have religious zeal, but lack an illuminated heart. You can have a clear understanding, chapter and verse. I can't even tell you how many times I'll have people quote Scripture to me completely out of context. Especially when it comes to relationships. Everyone knows the proof texts of their own sin. Have you ever noticed that? Somebody's struggling with their, their, you know, maybe an eating habit. Well, you know, bodily exercise profits little. Read the rest of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We all do that. It's like, oh, well, here it is. God said, no, that actually isn't what he said. That's what that says, but you're reading it with gnosis. Read it with epigenosis. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate that text, and you might find, ooh, there's a couple other verses that say something else that you might also want to know. Relationship things all the time. All the time. Well, I love him in my heart. But you're sleeping with him in a bed. You understand what I'm saying? Do we get it? Are we clear? And here's why we need to be clear. Because you're going to get asked these questions. You're going to have people in your life who are going to go, well, you know, I love him in my heart. You just say, sister, brother, that's not God's will. That's not God's will. 
you're going to destroy your life and theirs. You see, but we don't want them to hate us, so instead of telling them the truth, we actually lie to them by giving them gnosis. You see, because the truth is, God does know their heart. But he also will not accept open rebellion to him. So you have to have both pieces. That's the revelation of the Lord. And so he wraps this up by saying, look, they were actually ignorant of the unrighteousness of Israel. Now, saying that to a Jew at that time, the temple is still on the temple mount. We're ignorant of what? Come on, let's go to Jerusalem. You see that? God actually meets with us there. You you see that pillar behind that curtain? He's so holy, we can't even go in there. Oh, we know all about his righteousness. But you see, you can know all about his righteousness, and his righteousness can be far from you. You can know all about his righteousness, and his righteousness never change you. You can know all about his righteousness and actually lead people away from the very righteousness that they need to live. He's saying, look, knowledge of the truth is now lacked, linked, in essence, to a life of faith. You have to have faith. You've got to walk in faith. This isn't you just doing something. This is you being something. This is us being transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is us now thinking a different way. This is you, me, us, believing so greatly that God's word is true that we look at it and go, Lord, far be it from me to tell you how I should live my life. If you say it, I'm going to do it. That settles it. Not, well, you know, I really don't like that part. You know, I, I'm not sure that that's actually your word. I can't, again, I can't tell you how many. Well, you know, uh, there's been some scholars that have come forward, you know, in this uh, new higher criticism. And uh, they've very much proven that, you know, the gospel of Thomas is real. And there was a talking cross and it told everyone you didn't have to do that. People say these things to me. Who cool, Really? Can you find that for me in here? Well, well you know, it's on the internet. <laughs> no kidding. Ignorant of the unrighteousness of Israel. They didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You see, that was the issue. What a blow to the people who prided themselves of being righteous. What a blow to the person who says, I'm already good enough. What a blow to the person who says, I, well, I don't really care. Do you get it? You see, that's what happens. When you already think you're there, you believe that what you already are is the measuring stick. That's how you judge everything. You see, you have a type of godliness, 
but it's not good enough. And actually, the godliness that you have isn't really godliness. It's actually unrighteousness. It's called P-R-I-D-E, pride. And a lack of humility. And a very strong lack of understanding that you're not God personally. You still need the God that died for your sins. See, a lot of people, in essence, like the Jewish people, believed in the rabbis. Now the rabbi is kind of savior. The rabbi's the answer. You know, God's so bad that when you travel to Israel today, and if you go specifically to Tiberias, which is on the center of the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's actually a tomb to the great rabbi Maimonides. And if you go there, the wailing and gnashing of teeth of people laying on the tomb of Maimonides. And trust me, he's dead. He's been dead since 1204. Laying on the tomb of Maimonides, crying out for him to bring revelation to the world of the coming Messiah. He's already come. It's already here. Dwells inside of every believer by the Spirit of God. You see, so that unrighteousness has become righteousness. They measured their own standard of righteousness instead of the real standard, which is Christ. And, and the crazy thing is really this. The people then are not much different than people today. Bring God down to our level. We, we don't see it from Isaiah's face-to-face with the holy God. We see it from our own standard. And, and yet, Scripture in Romans 1, remember when we began this great book, says that all men actually have the ability to know God, if no other way than by the creation. You can see the things that are created and go, man, there's something that did this. I wonder who he is. Why did they do that? Because they measure God and themselves by human standards. They try and achieve godliness by their own means, their own terms, their own level. You see, the the natural man in you abhors the righteousness of God. Now, you may think that's a strong term, but I don't think it is. Matter of fact, your old man is at war with God. That's why you need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Old man comes out, oh, you're done. You need to go after the old man. You need to crucify the flesh, which is still resident in you. If you don't do that, flesh is sitting there going, I got this. Your flesh crosses its arms like this too. <laughs> your flesh does that, doesn't it? It's like, okay, we're okay there. We're good there. I don't really need to change, you know. It's like, I mean, you know, come on, God knows. Talk to, talk to people long enough and you're going to hear things like, God knows my flesh is weak. 
And the very next thing that they want to say, but they won't say it to me as a pastor, and that's why I'm sinning. God knows my flesh is weak, and that's why I refuse to do what he told me to do. God knows my flesh is weak, and that's why I'm going to keep doing this thing, which I know is destroying me, but God knows my flesh is weak. Yes, God knows your flesh is weak, but you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Amen? You see, you need to leave God where he belongs. High and lifted up. I want to bring the worship team back up. A couple of closing things for you. Look, when you think on this, every single attribute of God functions in perfection. Now understand what I just said. Every single attribute of God functions in absolute perfection. So he is love, and his love is perfect. Amen? You follow that? He is wise. His wisdom is perfect. And the reason that this is important is there's a few things in there that we don't like him to be perfect at. He is all-knowing, and his knowledge is perfect. You see, sometimes I don't like that one. You mean he knows what I'm thinking? Yes, he knows what I'm thinking. He is just, and his justice is perfect. He is all-knowledge. He is logos. But he is perfect in his knowledge. He knows everything about you. His justice, he's perfect in justice. He knows exactly what he needs to do for every situation. Now, praise God. He is gracious, and his grace is perfect. But don't mistake his perfect grace for imperfection in all of those other things. His perfect grace is supposed to do a work of perfecting all those other things in us. We're supposed to be perfect in love. We're supposed to be perfect in the power that God's given us by the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be perfect in righteousness. We're supposed to be perfect in holiness. You see, that's his actual standard because God is righteous and perfect at righteousness. We're supposed to be perfect. Now, praise God, it comes by grace. But don't bring God down to your level. Ask him to help you rise to his. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray together. We'll have some pastors up front. We're going to close in a worship song in a moment. And perhaps you're struggling with some of those areas that I talked about tonight. Maybe you need prayer. Perhaps there's something in your life. Maybe you don't know the Lord and you want to know Jesus Christ tonight as your personal Lord and Savior. As the pastors come forward. Just come, be prayed for. Invite the Lord into your life. Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Praise God, that can happen by grace. Father, thank you tonight that what you demand of us, you make possible by grace. And we are so grateful. Lord, I am grateful for your great grace. 
Lord, help us to never abuse that grace. Help us to never abuse your truth. Help us to leave you high and lifted up. Help us to forsake those things which we need to forsake and help us to cling to that which is good and noble of a wonderful report. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We bless you. And God's people tonight all together in unison set. Amen. Amen. Amen.